I once was lost beyond the thresholds, living in the kingdom. I didn't know what it meant to have Jesus in my life or how that would feel. Now I know, and it's awesome. One night during his last year of high school, Russell had an alarming dream. A nightmare, really. He woke up in a cold sweat. The images from the nightmare etched in his memory. In the dream, he had died and was sent to hell. He had argued with God. Why was he being sent to hell? He had always helped people, not hurt people. God just looked him in the eyes and said, You don't know me. Russell never forgot that dream. The fall after graduating from high school, Russell got to know some Christians and was impressed at how radically diverse their group of friends was. Their ability to love each other across ethnic lines showed him that they had something unique together, and so he came to a worship service. When they first invited him, the word worship brought up mental images of people bowing down to an idol. Instead, he saw another weird picture. A bunch of Jesus freaks with their arms in the air, people who were clearly very into Jesus. After that night, one of his new friends, Alan, asked him if he wanted to look at some stories in the Gospels, and Russell agreed. Now, Russell began to know Jesus through Scripture. In November, Russell went to his fourth worship service, and he had heard Anna give a talk about the kingdom of God and racial issues. Russell still remembers that night vividly. Anna spoke about race and ethnicity, and I really related. She was Korean and had always been out of school with Latinos and Blacks. I always hated being Chinese-American, wishing I was either white or Filipino. After Anna's talk, there were two invitations to respond. The first one was for anyone who related to the talk and wanted help with racial healing and ethnic identity. Russell stood up. The second call was for anyone who wanted to commit themselves to Christ. Russell stood again. He was the only one to stand that night, and everyone started clapping for Russell. It was November 3rd, 2004. That night, Russell immediately felt bad. Here was everyone clapping for him, happy for him. Yet ever since getting to know these people, he had been unkind to them. He had treated many of them terribly. He had been obnoxious and had known it. This applause and acceptance of him was almost too much that night as he realized what he had been doing and that they had been right about Jesus all along. The next week, Alan threw a celebration party for Russell. Lots of people came and showered Russell with gifts. They gave him books, tapioca, and congratulations on his new life with Jesus. Russell was uncomfortable with the attention. The first month. Today, Russell describes his first few weeks as 40 days of being in the desert. I was the ugliest person, lashing out at all people. I had all this hatred and jealousy in me, and it was all coming out. Past moments of being excluded were coming out and needed to be dealt with. I didn't really know how to pray. I would lash out at God, usually late at night. And I was calling friends constantly and asking questions. Why am I feeling this way? Why isn't anger okay? Why did you become a Christian? Are you sure he's real? The first year. The first year for Russell included some hardships. First, there was a flack he got from his friends. One of his closest friends was an atheist. Another good friend was a Jew, and an important mentor of his had always bashed Christians whenever he got the chance. At first, these folks in Russell's life assumed his conversion wasn't serious. But the longer he kept talking about Jesus, the more they criticized him. One good friend left a comment on his blog. If you really believe this stuff, I can't associate with you anymore. Russell received harsh instant messages. His friends called him traitor and Bible thumper. Another hardship in that first year was getting used to Christians and more specifically Christian culture. Explicitly Christian words didn't make sense to Russell, and even words like discernment and calling were used so much that Russell began hating them. The Bible was also confusing. 
He wasn't used to the vocabulary or structures or names found in it. He was surprised that it wasn't even set up like a normal book. There were columns on each page, for example. Sometimes Russell felt that people were just quoting the Bible at him, and the many Bible references just confused or frustrated him. The First Year Once our friends had entered the kingdom, they get to do an amazing thing. They get to live in that kingdom for the rest of their lives on earth. As citizens of this kingdom, we can attest to the exquisite, sublime reality of life within it. We had no idea it was going to be this amazing. And now, our friends get to experience that too, for the rest of their lives. But there's only one first year, and the first year in the kingdom is a unique year. Our friends have told us story after story of their first year. How wonderful it was, and often, the difficulties they faced. It was not that the blessings of the first year are better than those of every other year. As many of us know, the blessings of the kingdom just grow deeper and richer as we continue to follow Jesus. But there's nothing like getting to wake up in this new kingdom to experience forgiveness, love, and truth for the first time. The first year is a tender, wonderful year. Yet it is also a very confusing and painful year. It can be painful and confusing because our friends are starting a whole new life. During this first year, they will be re-examining many aspects of their life, developing a deeper conscience, figuring out how to live now that they are in this new kingdom. Being introduced to God's kingdom is like learning one's way around a new country. Here people use strange-sounding words and phrases, and many people engage in unapologetic public displays of affection with God, praying out loud, worshiping enthusiastically, as they are relating intimately with Jesus and His Spirit. Because of all this, it can be a pretty confusing, though also beautiful, season. Jesus said it was like being born all over again. After entering the kingdom, our friends have dozens of decisions to make about their new life. How do I live now? How do I relate with my boyfriend now? Do I keep cheating on tests? What about cussing? So what's wrong with porn? Our friends won't just face questions, they'll face outright opposition. I can't believe how my old friends are treating me. And I've heard mom telling grandma that she thinks I'm in a cult. Of course, they'll also face their own doubts and confusions. I know they said the honeymoon would end one day, but when I pray, I wonder if there's someone really there or not. Does that mean it's all just an emotional high? Heading beyond the threshold and into the kingdom is a crucial season. Growth is not automatic and must not be taken for granted. Though the seed is planted in the soil, key hazards loom ahead. Jesus knew this and gave us honest warnings about what can go wrong in the growth process after the seed has found soil. Mark 4, 1-20 Jesus said that the sun would climb high, and if the seedling did not have adequate roots, would scorch the young plant. The seedling is in a vulnerable place without strong roots to sustain it. Jesus talked about weeds too. Every new Jesus follower, just like all of us, will have some weeds in their soil, things that overtly or covertly can choke out their life with God. It may be some hidden aspect of their life that they are not willing to let Jesus speak to. Weeds sap our attention, joy, and passion. They deflect us away from Jesus. New believers need to learn to seek God and ask Him to point out things that may be twisting their spiritual life. Yes, going beyond the thresholds is a life of wonder. The first year of that adventure is usually unique in many ways. It is uniquely wonderful and uniquely crucial in the life of a believer. For this reason, it is important that we continue to journey alongside our friends throughout this season. Once your friend becomes a believer, it is not time to breathe a sigh of relief and go on vacation. We must not abandon our friends once they are across the line. Life with Jesus is neither automatic nor breezy. They desperately need us to help guide them beyond the threshold. Commit yourself to them. 
The first practical thing we can do to help a friend move beyond the thresholds is to commit ourselves to helping them. This may sound obvious, simple, and easy, but it is really none of those things. Consider Ananias, the man God called to help Saul in his first days as a new believer, Acts 9. The first days of Ananias and Saul's relationships are a great parable or illustration about the commitment it takes to help a new believer in their new life. When Ananias is called to go to Saul, it is a hard, hard calling for him to hear. Saul, after all, was a dangerous, rough, powerful man. Going to help him was a very scary prospect. Ananias actually debates God a bit on this point, pointing out what a risky, difficult thing God is asking him to do. This is the case for everyone who is called to walk alongside a new believer. It is a calling that is full of risk. How much time will it take? Is there any danger? Will they hurt me? Will I have the answers to all their questions? Will this reveal my own hypocrisies and current sins? Will I have to confront them and speak blunt truth to them? These are very real risks that we undertake when choosing to walk alongside a new believer. Gifts to help a new Jesus follower begin well. If you know a new believer or are mentoring one, it is a great idea to not overwhelm them with too many Christian books. And you'll do well to get in their hands one or two solid books that will help them pursue their own growth and establish strong foundations for their new life. Not only will they grow from reading a book, but they'll learn how they can be responsible for their own growth. We suggest titles such as these. Beginning Well, Christian Conversion and Authentic Transformation by Gordon T. Smith, Downers Grove, Illinois, InterVarsity Press, 2001. Getting Your Feet Dirty, A Down-to-Earth Look at Following Jesus by Don Everett, Downers Grove, Illinois, InterVarsity Press, 2007. My Heart, Christ's Home by Robert Boyd Munger, Downers Grove, Illinois, InterVarsity Press, 1986. Russell says he would give Blue Like Jazz to a new believer. Blue Like Jazz, Non-Religious Thoughts on Christian Spirituality by Donald Miller, Nashville, Thomas Nelson, 2003. When Ananias gets to Saul, he finds a pretty confused guy. Saul doesn't understand everything that has happened to him. He's been groping around blind for days and isn't sure what has happened and what's going to happen next. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me, so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Acts 9, 17-19 Saul needed someone to come in and help him interpret what had happened, someone to help him connect the docks, secure what had happened, and point a way forward. And this is also what our friends may need. The challenges of mentoring a new believer often seem harder than they really are, because we weren't braced for them. Once our friend enters the kingdom, we often assume that the hard part is over and let ourselves relax. Actually, they need us in this tough part of life as well. It's a season full of many joys and celebrations, but it is also a season of difficult questions, deep confusions, and live spiritual warfare. So what's the first practical step that we can advise for helping your friends move beyond the thresholds and further into the kingdom? Commit yourself to walk alongside them. This commitment is a serious thing. They need it. Don't commit yourself to doing it unless you really do have the time, energy, and willpower to do this with them. If you don't, then find someone who does. It is the responsibility of the community to make sure that new believers are mentored closely for the first eight weeks. Don't assume someone will do it. Make sure you know who it is and that they know what they are committing themselves to. 
New Believer Ministry is an essential ministry in the Church and should be regarded highly. Do the first eight weeks. If you have committed yourself to walk alongside a new believer, we suggest explicitly setting up a six to eight week intense mentorship with them. We say six to eight weeks because within that amount of time, the first hardships usually hit. If you make a commitment to only three weeks, they may not leave the honeymoon stage or need your help in understanding and responding to hardships during that time. We say intense mentorship because they don't need a class at this stage. They only need someone who knows their life, their friends, their struggles, someone who is willing to interact with them a few times a week, someone to pray with them and show them how to pray, someone to celebrate the new victories, someone to interpret what's going on, what they're feeling, and what they just read. If all people needed was a weekly class, then our first point above, commitment, would be unnecessary. But people don't just need information, especially in these first weeks. They need a mentor. We say explicitly setting up because there are too many dangers involved in being vague at this point. For your own sake and for their sake, we think it's essential to be explicit with them that you are going to have a particular type of relationship for the next eight weeks, after which your relationship will shift some. While intense mentoring and friendship is called for at the beginning, if you aren't clear, your friend may think that your friendship is always going to look like this. This thought may either overly excite them, causing them not to develop and find more sustainable sources of support in their local congregation, or freak them out, causing them to think that someone is going to be dropping by and holding their hand for the rest of their life. In general, there are three phases to this mentorship. The first phase is helping your friends secure the decision. This doesn't mean that their decision or prayer wasn't real and effective. It means that they need their experience interpreted. They need the language to describe what has happened. They need to know how to answer the various doubts that will come and the various emotions that they will feel. The second phase is the core of the eight-week mentorship. This incubation period is time to help them develop key kingdom habits that will be the foundations they continue to build upon for the rest of their lives. New Habits Within the First Eight Weeks As we mentor new believers, it is essential that we help them discover and nurture basic new kingdom habits. There's other ways we will care for them during this period giving them fish. But the most lasting gift we can give them will be helping them develop sustainable habits that they can grow in over time, teaching them how to fish. There are five essential habits that we think should be planted during these first weeks of their new life. These are essential for establishing a strong, healthy root system for new faith. If you are mentoring a new believer, you should find nurturing ways to do these five things. Number one, get them praying. Pray with them. Look together at what Jesus taught about prayer. Number two, get them studying scripture. Look at scripture together. Talk to them about your own joy in scripture. Teach them some basic methods for reading the Bible on their own. Orient them to the overall structure and point them to a couple of passages or books where they can start their reading. Number three, get them connected with community. Introduce them to some folks in your church or fellowship. Have some of your mentoring times with someone else present as well. Show them what Jesus taught about community and love and forgiveness. Number four, get them to tell their story. Bearing witness to God's work in our lives should be normal from day one. It is so powerful for a new believer to publicly vocalize what they have done. This goes a long way in helping them secure and understand what has happened in their hearts and minds. It also ensures that they will be sharing their new faith with the entire pocket of non-Christians they know, people who may be unknown to your Christian community. Number five. Get them serving in some way. It is never too early to begin serving in the body of Jesus. Life in the kingdom is found in serving, washing feet, laying down our lives, 
though it is essential that early on they begin to learn the joys of serving others, helping out at the service, volunteering with the homeless ministry, tithing, and the like. The final phase is the handoff. After the mentoring period is over, you should carefully guide new believers' transition to a local community, a small group, an attentive friend who will provide long-term sustainable care for them. This doesn't mean you can't continue to disciple them or mentor them or be their friend. It just means that you help them attach more fully to the local congregation as a whole. This will help the health of both of you over the long haul. Ananias' handoff of Saul was to the community of disciples at Damascus and later to Barnabas. Aren't we all thankful for the great fruit that came from this smooth transition? Mentoring is not a guarantee. We can only hope and pray that our investment in new believers will bear fruit over time. Some of those you mentor will break your heart with their choices. Others will grow into people like Mark and Abner, bearing kingdom fruit for the rest of their lives. Every mentoring opportunity is filled with hope and potential. Pray for God to be faithful to continue what he has begun in the new believers you are privileged to mentor. The Beginning All of us were at one time lost, and those of us in Jesus can now say that we are found. But this hasn't meant that our life with Jesus, our journey in his kingdom, has ended. We grow more every year. We are pruned by Jesus all the time. We face new struggles along the road. Just as our moment of conversion wasn't the last word on our faith, so it is with our friends. They have now been born and can begin living. Let us commit ourselves soberly to not leave our friends once they cross the threshold of the kingdom. Let us help them get their legs beneath them as they begin this new life. Not only will they be eternally thankful for being a part of their life-saving journey out of lostness, but they will also be tangibly, specifically thankful for all the little mercies we show them in their first year of the rest of their lives. Russell remembers that year and what was most helpful for him. It was a tough year. One of the most helpful things for me in making it through this year was honest Christians. It was most definitely not helpful when Christians weren't honest or just responded to every question with a Bible verse. What was more helpful were folks who shared their own stories and were honest about their own struggles. Walking through an entire gospel was also huge for me. I was in a study that went all the way through the gospel of Mark, and even though the study frustrated me at times, in the end it was very, very helpful to learn more about Jesus. I learned about the choices Jesus made and how he treated people. You know what I'm thankful most for? Anna, who had given me my first Bible, had a tough conversation with me about four months into that year. She knew me well enough to be honest and confront me on my anger and jealousy and how I've been treating everyone. I'm thankful for her boldness. Conclusion Servant Evangelism We are indebted to our friends and new brothers and sisters for telling us their stories. Each of their journeys to faith has been unique and mysterious, each one a beautiful story of God's intimate pursuit of them. Thank you Mark, Matthew, Abner, Sarah, Russell, and the rest of the new brothers and sisters who have shared their journeys and stories with us in our communities. Each individual story is a testament to the intimate, personal, moving God within human hearts. Taken as a whole, these stories illustrate the organic nature of coming to faith, especially the particularly postmodern organic way toward faith. The honesty of our friends is a gift to us. It's a gift because it allows us to be wise farmers, evangelists who are not just zealous and courageous in our witness, but also wise in our witness. Remember Doug's foray into evangelism? standing bravely on his campus singing so that souls might turn and be able to sing the words of the great hymn, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Doug and his friends were zealous and courageous that day, just not very wise. We offer these thresholds as a wisdom tool to help us all farm more wisely. It is not a perfect wisdom tool, of course, 
There are many exceptions to the five thresholds. People are unique. Your context will change the growth dynamics. Some have said the five thresholds are more cyclical than linear. Maybe that is true. One thing is certain. People will regress and go backward through the thresholds as often as they progress forward. We have hundreds of stories of people who once trusted us and then stopped trusting us. People who were curious, but then their questions dried up like a hose suddenly turning off. People on the journey who struggled to become open to change only to slide back into jadedness. And seekers who seemed so close to end their search without finding Jesus. These are the stories of heartbreak, when our joy turns to mourning before the Lord. It has happened to us many times, and it will happen to you. We must not allow ourselves to grow cynical when our friends disappoint us. Instead, we ask God for a new heart, His heart for people, all over again. When our friends stop being curious, we go back to arousing curiosity. When they stop being open, we enter back into the tension of having patience and challenging like Jesus challenged. That is just the way the journey goes. If the five-threshold framework is not a guaranteed slam dunk, what is it? We offer it as a discernment tool, something to help you ask good questions. As you seek God for wisdom about what your non-Christian friends need, you are in a great learning posture. Our hope is that as you use this tool with the Lord and your community to understand your non-Christian friends and neighbors more clearly, you will grow in servant evangelism. We hope that this learning posture will allow you to discard faulty assumptions about conversion that may have been clouding your view of your friends, and we hope that we provided some practical, tangible counsel for how to be more helpful to folks who are at each of the five thresholds and beyond. It is for these reasons that we have brought the five thresholds out of our communities and into this book form. But in the end, we realize this is not enough. As helpful as this tool may be, it is really not enough. The reality is we each need to make a decision to serve our non-Christian friends. Just because we understand more clearly what postmodern folks need in their journey, it does not necessarily follow that we will give them what they need. It takes energy and humility and risk to serve others, to allow others' needs to guide our actions. It takes effort and energy to serve our friends. Finding out where they are in their journey and stretching ourselves to help them along right where they are. When it comes to witness, it can be tempting to do it the easy way. To do witness in a way that serves us, is comfortable for us, meets us where we are. It is hard to lead worship out in the middle of a public place, as we did in the opening story. But it is easier to do that once than to patiently befriend those who are far from God. Too often, our evangelism plans and efforts are faith-filled, but don't really help those far from God walk the journey toward Jesus. A servant evangelist washes the feet of the non-Christian in humility and great empathy, rather than just doing evangelism in a way that the evangelist is most comfortable with. In order to avoid wasting our energy and risks and desperate prayers on self-serving actions, we suggest always asking three simple questions before entering into an evangelistic relationship or event. Number one, who is our audience? Number two, what do they need at this stage in their journey? Number three, how do we help them take the next step toward Jesus? Even with the greatest, most insightful and relevant wisdom tools, we each still have a decision to make and witness. Will we put our friends' needs before ours, or will we do what we want? In Jesus, may we all serve by laying down our own lives and preferences and expertise and habits and washing the feet of our wonderful postmodern friends and neighbors. This is our prayer for ourselves and for you.